0: This is Dean Hess, Editor of Respiratory Care, with the July 2011 podcast. This is, again, a full issue. So, Sarah, let's get started.
1: Our first paper this month is Accuracy and Reliability of Extubation Decisions by Attending Physicians by Toulemont and Moclesi. The authors sent surveys to 55 physicians. The survey comprised 32 clinical vignettes of real patients who were extubated after they tolerated a spontaneous breathing trial. The physicians were asked if they would extubate each patient and to give reasons if they opted not to. Completed surveys were obtained from 82% of physicians who postponed extubation in 37% of the cases. Agreement between any two physicians was fair and was highest between attending physicians from the same institution. In deciding whether to extubate a patient, 49% relied on the breathing pattern on pressure support ventilation, 33% relied on the acid-base status, 13% relied on the mental status, and 8% relied on the amount of secretions. The accuracy of the extubation decision was low. The sensitivity of the physicians identifying the patients who were successfully extubated was 57%, and the specificity was 31% the authors concluded that for this decision made on an almost daily basis in intensive care units physicians extubation decisions are inaccurate and only fairly reliable
0: it is very interesting that the accuracy of physicians extubation decisions was quite low in this study However, it should be pointed out that physicians relied on variables of limited value in predicting extubation outcome. As suggested by Siner and Siegel in their editorial, it would be of value to investigate factors that led to decisions to extubate despite data predicting failure. The use of pressure support and CPAP during the spontaneous breathing trial might also have led to optimistic estimates of the patient's ability to extubate.
1: Next is the paper, Performance of Current Intensive Care Unit Ventilators During Pressure and Volume Ventilation by Marchese and colleagues. The authors evaluated six ICU ventilators in the pressure support, pressure assist control, and volume assist control modes with a variety of lung model mechanics combinations and inspiratory muscle efforts. Pressure support and pressure control were set to 15 centimeters water, and PEEP was set at 5 and 15 centimeters water in all modes. During volume control, tidal volume was set at 500 milliliters, and inspiratory time was set at 0.8 seconds. There were marked differences in ventilator performance in all three modes. Volume control had the greatest difficulty meeting lung model demand and the greatest variability across all tested scenarios and ventilators. From high to low inspiratory muscle effort, pressure to trigger, time for pressure to return to baseline, and triggering pressure time product decreased in all modes. With increasing resistance and decreasing compliance, tidal volume pressure to trigger, time to trigger, time for pressure to return to baseline, time to 90% of peak pressure, and pressure time product decreased there were large differences between the default and optimal settings for all the variables in pressure support and pressure control. Performance was not affected by PEEP. The authors concluded that most of the tested ventilators performed at an acceptable level during the majority of evaluations but some ventilators performed inadequately during specific settings.
0: This was a lung model study of six ICU ventilators in pressure support, pressure control, and volume control modes. It is unique in that it evaluated, in addition to the various modes, conditions of different lung mechanics and respiratory effort. Most of the tested ventilators performed at an acceptable level during the majority of evaluations, but some ventilators performed inadequately during specific settings. As Nishimura points out in his editorial, ventilator evaluations using a lung model are not foolproof. The relevance of the results to clinical practice must be carefully considered. Thus, the clinical relevance of the findings of this study is yet to be determined.
1: Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation for Severe Refractory Respiratory Failure Secondary to 2009 H1N1 Influenza A is by Turner and colleagues. They reviewed the records of the seven patients with refractory hypoxemia due to H1N1 influenza who were treated with ECMO in their pediatric intensive care unit. Five of the seven patients survived to hospital discharge. The cohort's mean age was 21 years, and four were female. At admission to the intensive care unit, six had at least one comorbid condition, six were mechanically ventilated, and one was in shock. All seven patients were treated with oral all high-frequency oscillatory ventilation and inhaled nitric oxide prior to ECMO. Five received intravenous steroids, and two were treated with compassionate-use intravenous zanamivir. The mean duration of pre-ECMO ventilation was 8.7 days. Mean oxygenation index was 50 at ECMO cannulation. Six received veno-venous ECMO and one received venoarterial arterial ECMO. The mean duration of ECMO was 430 hours. This series suggests that ECMO is a viable treatment for refractory hypoxemia secondary to H1N1 influenza infection in both pediatric and adult patients.
0: A matter of much discussion during the H1N1 outbreak in 2009 was the role of ECMO for the treatment of those patients who developed refractory hypoxemia. Turner et al. report their experience with ECMO for severe refractory respiratory failure in this patient population. It is noteworthy that five of the seven patients survived to hospital discharge. The mean duration of ECMO was 430 hours. As Bennett points out in his editorial, ECMO continues to be a vital, life-saving option for critically ill refractory respiratory failure. Because we do not have clear-cut criteria for the initiation of ECMO, its use is likely to remain controversial.
1: Next is the paper by Brandao et al. Helioxin forward-leaning posture improve the efficacy of nebulized bronchodilator in acute asthma, a randomized trial. The authors randomized 59 patients who presented to the emergency department in severe asthma crisis into four treatment groups, nebulized bronchodilator plus oxygen, nebulized bronchodilator plus oxygen plus forward-leaning posture, nebulized bronchodilator plus heliox, and nebulized bronchodilator plus heliox plus forward-leaning posture. Before and after the bronchodilator treatments, the subjects were seated with torso-erect, breathing room air. Each subject received two doses, 20 minutes apart, of nebulized phenitoral plus epitropium bromide. The nebulizer was run with oxygen or heliox. The oxygen plus forward-leaning posture group had a greater FEV1 improvement than the oxygen group. The heliox plus forward-leaning posture group had a greater FEV1 improvement than the oxygen group and the heliox group. The heliox group had a greater reduction in respiratory rate than the oxygen group. The Heliox plus forward-leaning posture group had significantly greater peak expiratory flow improvement than any of the other groups. The authors concluded that Heliox plus forward-leaning posture during bronchodilator nebulization improves bronchodilator efficacy in patients with severe acute asthma.
0: Although the use of Heliox is often discussed in the context of severe acute asthma, forward-leaning posture as an adjunct to the administration of nebulized bronchodilators is not commonly considered. Brandeo et al. report that the use of heliox with forward-leaning posture had significantly greater improvement in peak expiratory flow with inhaled bronchodilator than groups that received neither heliox nor forward-leaning posture. As Fink points out in his editorial, the mechanism explaining this response is unclear. But the effect of posture, with or without Heliox, drawing bronchodilator treatment, and patients with acute asthma merits consideration.
1: Management and long-term outcome of patients with chronic neuromuscular disease admitted to the intensive care unit for acute respiratory failure, a single-center retrospective study, is by Flandreau and colleagues. The objective of this study was to describe the respiratory management of patients with chronic neuromuscular diseases admitted to a university hospital ICU for acute respiratory failure and long-term outcomes. The authors retrospectively analyzed patients with chronic neuromuscular diseases admitted to their ICU for a first episode of acute respiratory failure between January 1, 1996 and February 27, 2007. They assessed severity of illness on ICU admission, respiratory management during ICU stay, and outcomes on June 15, 2008. During the study period, 87 patients had their first ARF episode that required ICU admission. In the hereditary diseases group and the acquired diseases group, respectively, the rates of NIV use during ICU stay were 82% and 63%. The intubation rates were 30% and 56%, and the tracheotomy rates were 9% and 12%. At the final assessment, the mortality rate was 58%, and mortality was not significantly related to the type of neuromuscular disease. At final assessment, 46% of the patients were on NIV, and 29% had tracheotomy. The authors conclude that chronic neuromuscular disease is an uncommon cause of ARF for which NIV is often used.
0: Floundro et al. report their experience with patients who had their first ICU admission and who have hereditary and acquired neuromuscular diseases. Not surprising, the rates of NIV use during the ICU stay were high. Also not surprising, the tracheostomy rates were about 10%. At a median of three years, the mortality rate was greater than 50%. At final assessment, about half of the patients were on NIV, and about a third had tracheostomy.
1: Osteoporosis prevalence and associated factors in patients with COPD a cross-sectional study is by Silva and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine the prevalence of osteoporosis in a sample of COPD outpatients and investigate the correlation between T-score and several factors suggested to be associated with osteoporosis. T-score is a comparison of the patient's bone mineral density to that of a healthy 30-year-old of the same sex and ethnicity. In a cross-sectional study, the authors conducted dual-energy x-ray, absorptiometry bone mineral density scans of the hips and lumbar spine, and collected data on smoking and alcohol habits, menopausal status, comorbidities, inhaled and oral corticosteroid dose and duration of treatment, previous bone fractures, pulmonary function tests, calcium intake, vitamin D intake, and physical activity. They evaluated 95 patients, 42% were osteoporotic, 42% were osteopenic, and 16% had normal bone mass. There was a significant inverse relationship between femoral neck T-score and Bode index. There were also significant correlations between T-score and FEV1, forced vital capacity, percent of predicted functional residual capacity, inspiratory capacity, ratio of inspiratory capacity to total lung capacity, and absolute and percent of predicted diffusing capacity of the lung for carbon monoxide. The authors concluded that there is a high prevalence of osteoporosis and osteopenia in outpatients with COPD. Patients with osteoporosis had more severe COPD than patients with normal bone mass.
0: In this study, it is interesting to note that fewer than 1 in 5 patients with COPD had normal bone mass. In fact, 42% were osteoporotic and another 42% were osteopenic. Patients with osteoporosis had more severe COPD than patients with normal bone mass. Although this finding is not directly related to respiratory care, it might impact decisions related to airway clearance techniques and rehabilitation.
1: Next is the paper, Comparison of Expiratory Isovolume Pressure Flow Curves with the Stop Flow versus the Esophageal Balloon Method by Corsi et al. The objective of this study was to compare the stop flow and esophageal balloon methods by measuring the differences between the pressures and flows at which flow limitation first occurs in five healthy subjects the authors used the esophageal balloon method and the stop flow method at twenty five per cent fifty per cent and seventy five per cent of vital capacity and constructed isovolume pressure flow curves showing the pressure at which the flow became limited during forced expiration The mean calculated pleural pressure at flow limitation with the stop flow method was 2.7 times and 1.6 times that via the esophageal balloon method at 25% of vital capacity and 50% of vital capacity, respectively. The maximum flow at flow limitation with the stop flow technique was 0.7 times and 0.6 times that via the esophageal balloon method at 25% of vital capacity and 50% of vital capacity respectively the authors concluded that the stop flow method showed potential to non invasively obtain isovolume pressure flow curves
0: this study addresses an important issue in respiratory physiology that is flow limitation they found that the stop flow method showed potential to non invasively obtain isovolume pressure flow curves The clinical relevance of this finding and whether it can be extrapolated to patients with respiratory disease remains to be determined.
1: Effects of Implementing Adaptive Support Ventilation in a Medical Intensive Care Unit is by Chen and colleagues. The authors conducted a pilot study in a medical ICU. The ICU has one respiratory therapist who manages ventilators twice during the day shift. No on-site respiratory therapist is present at night. ASV was started at a percent minute volume setting of 80 to 100%. The control group was managed with the conventional ventilation modes and a ventilator protocol during a six-month period immediately before the ASV study period. Extubation was attempted in 73% of the patients in the ASV group and 80% of the patients in the non-ASV group. The reintubation rates in the ASV and non-ASV groups were 5% and 7% respectively. In the ASV group, 20% of the patients achieved extubation readiness within one day, compared to 4% in the non-ASV group. The median time from the enrollment to extubation readiness was one day for the ASV group and three days for the non-ASV group. Patients switched to ASV were more likely to be liberated from mechanical ventilation at three weeks. The authors conclude that extubation readiness may not be recognized timely in at least 15% of patients recovering from respiratory failure. ASV helps identify these patients and may improve their weaning outcomes.
0: Notable in this study was the respiratory therapist staffing. In the ICU where this study was conducted, there is one respiratory therapist who manages ventilators twice during the day shift, and there is no on-site respiratory therapist at night. Whether similar results would be found in an ICU with greater respiratory therapy staffing is unknown. It remains to be determined whether use of a ventilator mode to facilitate weaning is cost-effective. It has been suggested in studies like this that automated weaning improves patient outcomes when staffing is suboptimal. However, ventilators with these modes are more expensive, so units that cannot afford additional staffing might also not be able to afford these more expensive ventilators.
1: Safety and efficacy of short-term intrapulmonary percussive ventilation in patients with bronchiectasis is by Panaroni et al., The objective of this study was to assess the safety and efficacy of intrapulmonary percussive ventilation compared to traditional standard chest physical therapy in patients with bronchiectasis and productive cough. In a randomized crossover study, 22 patients underwent intrapulmonary percussive ventilation and chest physical therapy. Before each treatment session, immediately after the session, 30 minutes after the session, and 4 hours after the session, the authors measured SpO2, heart rate, respiratory rate, and the patient's subjective sensation of phlegm encumbrance and dyspnea. Immediately after each treatment session, the authors also measured the patient's discomfort. They also measured the volume and wet and dry weight of collected sputum. The incidence of adverse effects was similar in the groups. Heart rate and respiratory rate decreased during treatment and sensation of phlegm encumbrance improved with both treatments. Only intrapulmonary percussive ventilation improved the sensation of dyspnea. The patients found intrapulmonary percussive ventilation more comfortable than traditional standard chest physical therapy. Both treatments caused important phlegm production, but there were no differences in sputum volume, wet weight, or dry weight. The authors conclude that in patients with bronchiectasis and productive cough, short-term intrapulmonary percussive ventilation was as safe and effective as traditional chest physical therapy with less discomfort.
0: In this study of intrapulmonary percussive ventilation compared to traditional standard chest physical therapy... Both treatments resulted in important phlegm production and there were no differences in sputum volume, wet weight, or dry weight. Patients found IPV more comfortable than traditional standard chest physical therapy, but other than that the treatments produced identical results. This is one of now many studies that show that one approach to airway clearance is not clearly superior to others. The approach chosen is often determined by clinician bias or patient preference.
1: Next, Postio et al. report their study, Evaluation of an Alternative Chest Physiotherapy Method in Infants with Respiratory Syncytial Virus Bronchiolitis. They randomized infants into two groups. Eight patients received 27 sessions of nebulization of hypertonic saline. 12 patients received 31 sessions of nebulization of hypertonic saline, followed by the author's new CPT method. They used the Wang Clinical Severity Scoring System and measured SPO2 and heart rate before each CPT session, immediately after the 30 minute session, and 120 minutes after the session. Over five hospital days, the daily baseline Wang score decreased significantly in the new method CPT group, whereas it did not in the first group. There were no adverse events. Average hospital stay was not significantly different between the groups. The authors concluded that new CPT method showed short-term benefits to some respiratory symptoms of bronchial obstruction in infants with acute respiratory syncytial vitus bronchiolitis.
0: In this study, the authors evaluated a new airway clearance method to treat respiratory syncytial virus bronchiolitis. This method consists of 15 prolonged slow expirations followed by five provoked cough maneuvers. Although the new method showed short-term benefits related to some symptoms of airway obstruction and there were no adverse events, average hospital stay was not significantly different between the groups. As I commented in the previous study by Paneroni, this is one of now many studies to show that one approach to airway clearance is not clearly superior to others.
1: Chester Step Test in Patients with COPD Reliability and Correlation with Pulmonary Function Test Results is by De Camargo and colleagues. The objective was to determine the reliability of the Chester step test in patients with COPD and correlation with the pulmonary function test and exercise test results. Thirty-two patients undertook two Chester step tests and two six-minute walk tests on different days in random order. A subgroup of 11 patients performed incremental cycle ergometry. 31 patients performed stage 1 of the Chester step test and 19 patients performed stage 2 of the Chester step test. There was no difference in heart rate or SpO2 between the two Chester step tests at the peak of exercise or at the end of each stage. There was a significant correlation between the number of steps and FEV1 and six minute walk distance. There was a significant correlation between number of steps and peak heart rate. In the 11 patients who performed the incremental cycling test, there was a significant correlation between number of steps and peak load work. In the six patients in whom oxygen uptake could be estimated from the Chester step test, oxygen uptake was higher than that measured at the peak of the cycling test. The authors conclude that, despite being highly reproducible, the Chester Step test has a very short duration in patients with COPD. The number of steps incremented in each stage seems to be too large for these patients.
0: The five-stage Chester Step test assesses aerobic capacity in healthy subjects, but it has not been tested in patients with COPD. In this study, despite being highly reproducible, the Chester step test had a very short duration in patients with COPD. The number of steps incremented in each stage may be too large for this patient population.
1: C-reactive protein alone or combined with cardiac troponin T for risk stratification of respiratory intensive care unit patients is by Azu et al., This was a retrospective electronic data review of patients who presented to the emergency department for respiratory reasons between December 2007 and December 2009, and in whom CRP and CTNT levels were measured. Patients with a diagnosis of pulmonary embolism and acute coronary syndrome were excluded. Mean ICU stay was 9.9 days and mean hospital stay was 14.1 days. For predicting mortality, receiver operating characteristic analysis gave a CRP cutoff value greater than or equal to 10 milligrams per deciliter and a CTNT cutoff value of greater than or 0.01 nanograms per milliliter. For CRP, the mortality area under the curve was 0.691, the sensitivity was 65%, and the specificity was 70%. For CTNT, the mortality area under the curve was 0.733, the sensitivity was 78%, and the specificity was 56%. Of the patients who died, 65% had a CRP greater than or equal to 10 milligrams per deciliter and 78% had CTNT greater than or equal to 0.01 nanograms per milliliter. On multivariable regression analysis, CRP greater than or equal to 10 milligrams per deciliter was associated with a 6.6 fold higher ICU mortality. CRP alone was more valuable in predicting ICU mortality than in combination with troponin or saps II. The authors conclude that elevated CRP is an independent early prognostic marker of mortality risk in ICU patients.
0: Mortality is high among patients admitted to the ICU. Several prognostic markers have been described in such patients, but the literature contains no data comparing CRP and cardiac troponin T. The multivariate regression analysis in this study suggests that CRP greater than 10 mg per deciliter was associated with a 6.6-fold higher ICU mortality. Although the authors conclude that elevated CRP is an early prognostic marker of mortality risk in ICU patients, further work is needed to validate this finding.
1: Our final original research paper this month is MicroRNA Expression Profile in Hyperoxia-Exposed Newborn Mice During the Development of Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia by Zhang et al. The authors exposed neonatal mice to either room air or 60% oxygen, beginning at birth, and used microRNA microarray and real-time polymerase chain reaction on lung samples. The hyperoxia-exposed mice developed a lung injury that mimicked human BPD. 51 microRNAs shared similar profiles in the hyperoxia-exposed BPD lungs and the normal lungs, which indicates that those microRNAs might play a protective role during the septation process. In the BPD lungs, compared to the control lungs, 14 microRNAs were upregulated and seven microRNAs were downregulated, which indicates that these microRNAs might play an important role in the development of BPD. This study is the first to identify microRNAs associated with BPD development, which provides a clue for further investigation of their function in BPD development.
0: MicroRNAs are ribonucleic acid molecules that have important functions in development, cellular differentiation, apoptosis, proliferation, and migration. Very little is known regarding their role in developmental lung diseases. This study provides insight into the genetic basis for BPD. It is the first to identify microRNAs associated with the development of BPD. However, because it was an animal study, much additional work will be necessary to determine the clinical significance of these findings.
1: This month, we publish a review of pulmonary alveolar protonosis. We publish case reports on multinodular goiter as the initial presentation of systemic sarcoidosis, endobronchial metastasis of a primary transitional cell and signet ring cell carcinoma of the urinary bladder, lung hernia associated with hemothorax following cardiopulmonary resuscitation and the velcro mustache as a potential barrier to effective bag and mask ventilation in neonates on nasal cpap our teaching cases this month are of a 60 year old man presenting with yellow nail syndrome and primary pulmonary mucosa associated lymphoid tissue lymphoma in a patient with acquired immune deficiency syndrome
0: To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.